This is exactly right. This story contains adult content and language. Listener discretion is advised. As soon as you give people power, you will find that that person is absolutely capable of behaving very, very badly. I'm Kate Winkler-Dawson, a nonfiction author and journalism professor in Austin, Texas. I'm also the host of the historical true crime podcast, Tenfold More Wicked, and the co-host of the podcast, Buried Bones on Exactly Right. I've traveled around the world interviewing people for the show, and they are all excellent writers. They've had so many great true crime stories, and now we want to tell you those stories with details that have never been published. Tenfold More Wicked presents Wicked Words is about the choices that writers make, good and bad. It's a deep dive into the stories behind the stories. Most of us know that women are just as capable of killing as men are. Yet most true crime stories cover men killing women, which makes sense considering the statistics. But author Jennifer Wright wrote a book called She Kills Me. She did research on dozens of stories where women are the killers. And now she tells us why. One of the reasons that I wanted to write She Kills Me was because I listened to a lot of true crime podcasts. And the general gist of a lot of true crime podcasts that I listened to is a woman was murdered. Uh, let's look at men in her life who must have done this. And I really wanted to write about cases where the genders are reversed, where the woman is not the person who is being victimized, but the person doing the victimizing. And uh, there are, of course, so many cases of that throughout history because When women are given power, they are apt to abuse it, just as men are apt to abuse it. And because women have often been put in situations, whether it's incredibly abusive marriages or just uh, times of when they've had very, very few rights, when they've been enslaved, that they really have no recourse other than killing the people who are abusing them. And it was such an interesting experience to look at all the reasons that women might have chosen to kill and some of the really fascinating cases through history where that's happened. What is it that is interesting to you? I know we just talked about sort of the perception that we have of women as killers. Normally, we're framing them as victims. Mm -hmm. Certainly, I've written books and done stories where the majority of it is women who are murdered by men. In your book, it says 40 cases. And I just kind of thought I would struggle to come up with 40 cases that I know fairly well, I think, about the subject. I mean, it was it was so much fun. I think there are actually more cases. One of the worries for me was you can only have so many Nazi hunters. Um, I, I love writing about women who killed Nazis, but uh, really we only needed two or three of those in the book. So uh, there are actually many, many more cases of women who have been spies during wars or who've been put in situations where they have had to kill their abusive husbands, often using poison, and uh, it was really a matter of saying, okay, these are these are some very unique cases, and these are cases where I don't see overlap with a lot of other women who were working as spies during World War II and killing Nazis. 
What are the major differences, do you think, between the female killer and the male killer? Because when I've talked about that with, you know, different forensic psychologists and and they just say, really, a lot of times it comes down to the motive and does a woman need to eliminate competition? Is she doing it, you know, out of passion? And sometimes men do it out of pleasure. But do you think that there are parallels to men and women really when it comes down to it that women can have the same motivations as men? do. Absolutely. I think women are taught from a very early age that you are not supposed to be openly angry at people, that you are supposed to be sweet, you are supposed to be polite all the time. And I think that's one of the reasons that poison is referred to as a woman's murder weapon. You don't see as many cases where there are these violent, bloody brawls with women. But you see a lot of cases where a woman in history is in a very bad marriage And suddenly the man just gets very sick at the same time that women were buying a lot of arsenic. There was actually a case introduced in British Parliament at one point that would forbid women from buying arsenic. Now, it didn't pass. uh, And one of the reasons that it didn't pass was because women said that they needed to kill rats in the kitchen. But uh, the reason that they wanted that to pass was because they were very afraid of women using arsenic to kill their bad husbands. So uh, there are definitely cases where women are trapped, but there are also absolutely cases where if we look to um, Russia prior to the revolution of where women have had control of a great number of serfs, where they have taken enormous pleasure in torturing and killing those people. Now, again, I think you can say that maybe the patriarchy is in some ways at work. Maybe those women themselves feel somewhat oppressed by society, and they're looking for a way to take that anger out on other people. Many of us have days where we don't feel great about society, and we do not beat our serfs within an inch of their lives. So I think in cases where you have seen women have control over other people, whether they're serfs in Russia or whether they are Black people in America, women have taken just as much pleasure as men in abusing their power over other people. And it's interesting, in certain parts of history, there is a time when women have, because of the poisons, have all of these options, right? Mm -hmm. They're able to easily obtain poisons and use them. And then in the case of like a Lizzie Borden who supposedly violently killed her parents, you have an all-male jury who just says this is impossible. And I've done a lot of cases like this where it is very clear that, you know, this is somebody who has committed a crime and yet you have an all-male jury that just cannot fathom that a woman would actually be able to do either something violent or even something sneaky. So there seems to be this sort of intersection in time where women There's this rise of women being able to access all of these, you know, these poisons, but at the same time, men still being sort of gullible enough to believe that they're not going to use them. I think that is absolutely true, and it's such a great point. But something I did find as I was reading about all these cases is that's only true if it's well-born white women. Yep. Um, And it's especially true if they're pretty. If it's a pretty white woman... This beautiful angel could never kill anyone, but if she did, he deserved it. If you're talking about immigrant women or if you're talking about black women, men can really believe that those are women who are going to kill other people. So uh, it depends a little bit on whether or not you're well-born. There is one case, and there's a great quote from a Chicago newspaper. It was one of the Jazz Age murderesses that said that uh, this woman was hung because she never went to the beauty parlor. Oh, <laughs> Gosh. 
if she had been pretty and she'd been in trial, then she would have gotten away with it. Well, let's talk about, I think this case that you have in particular out of this book is really interesting. Where are we in time? What year? What country? We're in Britain and we're looking at the 1860s and the early 1870s. So Christiana Edmonds was born in 1829 in England. She was the daughter of an architect. So she came from a pretty well-established, well-to-do family, but it was also a family with a history of insanity. So her father died in a mental asylum. Her brother was also institutionalized. Now, Christiana seemed like she had somewhat escaped the problems of her family. She was sent off to boarding school. And once she graduated, she returned to care for her aging mother. And they bought a very nice house in Brighton, where Christiana didn't marry. And she was sort of taking care of her mother and Pretty quickly by her 30s, she was seen as the spinster living in a big old house on the hill. But she had a neighbor named Dr. Charles Beard, who Christiana quickly became infatuated with. She started visiting Dr. Beard many, many times for supposed complaints. And it became clear to him fairly quickly that she didn't actually seem to be suffering from any real medical malady. She was just a little bored. She was a little lonely. Hmm. And I think in part because we are very apt to try to exonerate women who kill, there are a lot of people who wonder, well, were she and Charles Beard having an affair? Was he sort of preying on this younger woman's affections? And Charles Beard was very adamant throughout his life that he thought that maybe he flirted with her once or twice, but really she just kept sending him letter after letter after letter. So uh, there's nothing to suggest that they were having a mutual affair. And finally, after this had gone on for a while, in 1871, Charles Beard told Christina that he thought that she must be a little bit lonely, living all by herself with her mother. So maybe it would be nice if she came and visited him and his wife. Wouldn't she love to go visit Dr. Beard's wife? And Christina, in a way that surprised me a little bit, was very enthusiastic about this possibility. And immediately afterwards, went down to pay a call on the doctor's wife. And when she was paying this call, she brought a box of chocolates with her. Now, she gave one of the chocolates to Mrs. Beard. And Mrs. Beard immediately spat out the chocolate said it was disgusting, became very, very ill. And I want to say that when I read this, I was so proud of Mrs. Beard because if somebody gave me disgusting chocolates, I would choke every one of them down. And I'd be like, these are gross, but they are a gift. <laughs> and I'm being polite. So it must have tasted terrible. I mean, really, right? Exactly. So Dr. Beard came home and noticed that these chocolates were filled with strychnine poisoning. Now, he immediately went to Christiana and said, what are you doing? Why are you trying to poison my wife? What's going on? And Christiana said, oh, this is a horrible misunderstanding. These chocolates that I bought must just have been poisoned. And Dr. Beard was like, all right, whatever. Never talk to me or my family again. He wasn't going to report this to the police for fear that there was going to be a scandal, that people would think that maybe he and Christiana were sleeping together. But it was very clear, like, you're never to come to my house or contact me again conversation. How did Dr. Beard know that there was strychnine in the chocolate? 
Strychnine was a fairly common poison at the time. Um, people would use it to kill stray cats, among other things. So it wouldn't have been an uncommon thing for a person in the medical profession to recognize. So he smelled it, do we think? Or is it granules? I assumed he smelled it. Okay. I personally have never encountered strychnine poisoning. Right. But I do know it was a fairly common poison at the time. So... I don't think it would have been totally mysterious. I feel like if chocolates were filled with bleach, probably the average person who has used bleach to clean their counters could recognize it now. Right. So maybe we're talking about something that kind of operates along those lines. So Charles Beard is saying, this is a woman who clearly has an infatuation for me. She comes down, she meets my wife, she gives her chocolates that clearly are laced with poison. My wife is sick and she doesn't die. But he says, I want nothing more to do with you. Do we know what Christiana's reaction to this is? Is she surprised? Immediate denial. Full and total denial that she too has been tricked. She's gone to Maynard's, the local chocolate store, and she just bought these poison chocolates. And in the next few weeks, other people start getting very sick from chocolates that they bought at Maynard's. And uh, Maynard's don't really understand what's happening, but... They do know that a lot of people are getting very sick. And this all comes to a head when a four-year-old toddler named Sidney Barker was taken by his uncle to Maynard's and they bought a bag full of candy. He ate a lot of it and the toddler died. Now, what was happening was that Christiana was taking a syringe, buying chocolates from Maynard's, filling them with strychnine, and then returning them so that she could have plausible deniability that she did not try to kill Dr. Beard's wife. Eventually, this was tracked back to her because while she had been buying up boxes of chocolates from Maynard's, she'd also been having local boys go to the chemist and buy her strychnine. So people were eventually able to put together the two and find out that this woman is repeatedly buying chocolates, poisoning them, and trying to pass it off as a problem with the chocolatier rather than the problem with herself. At one point, she told people that they should sue Maynard's, which I really feel so bad for the poor man running this chocolate store wow. who is just trying to run a nice establishment and does not realize that this woman is constantly poisoning chocolates in his store. So once Dr. Beard has said goodbye to her and that's it, does she continue trying to contact him. Oh, yes. What is she saying in this contact with him? I still have a hard time believing that there was not some sort of something between the two of them, but I, I don't know. It's entirely possible. It's also possible, and uh, I think it's something we don't talk about a lot with women, is that this was kind of a bored woman who did not have a job. Uh, she did not have a rich social life. It must have been an exciting feeling of power to realize that you could cause chaos in a town like this. Brighton was a fairly well-to-do town. It was a very reserved English town. And suddenly realizing, like, I can create chaos must have been an exciting feeling if you were a woman during this period. So, uh, yes, I think it's possible that she was having an affair with Dr. Beard. I also think a lot of people have affairs and do not poison their partner's wives. So I don't really think it excuses it if they were having an affair. And at her trial in 1872, Christiana was deemed insane. Christiana was sent to a lunatic asylum rather than being executed. 
And to your point, uh, the Pall Mall Gazette in London in 1872 said that she used to be reprieved for the far simpler reason that she is a woman and not a man. Hmm. They pointed out that this woman had a very clear motive, that she acted very sensibly under the circumstances, and that she really seemed to know what she was doing the entire time. So the reason that she was deemed a lunatic really just had to do with the fact that we're talking about a woman here and not a man. And seemingly during her time at the mental asylum, she enjoyed playing pranks on the other people. She continued to profess her love for Dr. Beard until the end of her life. Hmm. And she continued to talk about how she was a great beauty until the end of her life. So uh, she did not seem to have a particularly distressing time in the mental asylum, but uh, she also was never released from the asylum. So we have a woman who it sounds like, of course, has some sort of mental difficulty, mental illness happening, but also is someone who is acting rationally enough to try to cover up a crime. I mean, this feels very similar to, we just had an author on, talk about the Stella Nichols story, the woman who poisoned, I think it was Excedrin tablets in the 80s to kill her husband, and then it ends up killing other people to cover it up. So, you know, you have someone who is really being calculating, but because she's a woman in this time period, you know, they want to show her mercy and over and over again, every time I report on a woman, we see that almost always that there's this sort of idea of mercy. Is there another case that it is very clear that this is someone who did it because they just wanted to do it, that they, as you mentioned before, got great pleasure out of killing someone? Oh, oh, Delphine Lurie is an especially horrifying case. Uh, Delphine LaLaurie was a very wealthy slave owner from New Orleans. Uh, you can still see La, the LaLaurie mansion if you travel to New Orleans. And she was known for being very charming and very elegant. She had wonderful parties, but she was also known for having extreme fits of rage. And uh, that's something that her children talk about when they referred their mother. And they talk about how they were very careful to avoid anything that might excite my mom's bad mood. And it's very unfortunate that during this period, Delphine LaLaurie enslaved people and they were treated so badly at this time that it shocked even her neighbors in New Orleans, who noticed that the LaLaurie slaves look very malnourished and very, very ill-treated. A lawyer was actually sent to LaLaurie's house in 1832 by the neighbors to remind her about a law stipulating that enslaved people could be taken from their masters if they were being treated too cruelly. But the lawyer left their meeting to shock that anybody could accuse this beautiful, elegant woman of treating her slaves poorly. Hmm. This all eventually came to a head with a fire set in 1834. It was set by a cook who was being starved to death, despite the fact that she was being kept chained within a few feet of the stove. If you have ever been to some of the old cookhouses or kitchens in the South, you can imagine how boiling that must have been. The cook eventually very bravely decided that she's going to burn this house down and she's probably going to die in the process, but it will be worth it to try to rescue everyone else. And the blaze alerted their neighbors and the neighbors raced to help extinguish the fire as would have been the custom during this time. 
But they noticed that while Delphine was outside, she didn't have anyone with her. And normally, if you saw a fire in a mansion like this, you would see all the members of the household pouring out of the mansion. When they went to fight the flames, they found the cook who had set the fire, who was still locked to the stove, and the cook screamed at them to go up to the attic right away. And the authorities were led up to the attic, and there they found seven enslaved people chained up. And when they saw them, the visitors became physically ill. Hmm. Their skins were rotting off their bodies. In 1838, the sociologist Harriet Martineau wrote, Of the nine slaves, the skeletons of two were afterwards found poked into the ground. The other seven could scarcely be recognized as human. Their faces had the wildness of famine. Their bones were beginning to come through their skin. They were chained and tied in constrained postures, some on their knees, some with their hands stuck above their head. They had iron collars with spikes, which kept their heads stuck in one position. And next to them could be seen Delphine's whip and stool, which she would stand upon so she had a better angle with which to beat all of these people. These sites were enough for the neighbors to turn on Delphine. Um, in what may be the only time in history that a torch-wielding mob was absolutely right, her neighbors just decided to finish the cook's work and burn that mansion to the ground. Wow. But Delphine and her husband were able to escape, and they went away to Paris. So, again, a woman not really being punished despite behaving in an absolutely atrocious manner. Okay, we talked a little bit about the horrors of the old regime in Russia. Mm -hmm. And one woman that really exemplified the horrors of that time were Darya Saltikova. She was born in 1730 and lived until 1801. And again, this is really a story about how abusive women can be when they're given power over other people. Mm -hmm. And it really just is the case that in history, that doesn't happen as often as power is given to men. But Daria Saltikova was the mistress of a very large Russian state, and she was the owner of hundreds of serfs. She was also a young widow at the age of 25. Now, being a young widow is a fate that was really hoped for by many, many women in history. It meant that she could be in charge of an estate. She could kind of do what she wanted in a day. And she could remarry for love if she was interested in doing that. And Daria really embraced this autonomy. During her marriage, she'd been known for being very shy. She'd been very introverted. But she came out of her shell in her widowhood. And she quickly embarked on a romance with a very handsome man named Nikolai Chuchev. Now, this romance didn't ultimately go well, but the affair did last for a while, lasted until Daria was 32 years old. And then she found out that Nicholas intended to marry another much younger woman. And at that, she became absolutely apoplectic with rage. So she decided to blow the couple's house up. She bought gunpowder, she sent her serfs to the new woman's house, and the serfs chose not to act very reasonably. So Daria said, okay, well, if you're not going to blow their house up, can you beat them to death? 
the serfs, again, decided they didn't really want to beat two people they didn't know to death. And they just told Nicolay about Darius' intentions. And he filed a report with the police, which she denied. He and his new bride fled to a different town. But Daria really took out her rage on the serfs. And she had always been a harsh mistress. Uh, there's a wonderful excerpt about this in Lady Killers, which is another absolutely fantastic book on this topic that dives in more detail into some female killers that talks about how Daria lit one woman's hair on fire. She pushed an 11-year-old child down a stone staircase. Mm. She would grab logs of wood tucked in every room and then for the fireplace and use them as makeshift clubs with which to beat her servants. When the serfs escaped and attempted to report her to the authorities, she replied, laughing, no matter how much you report or complain about me, the authorities will never do anything to me. Hmm. And her abuses escalated after the breakdown of this love affair. Of her 600 serfs, she murdered 138 of them. Finally, Darius' crimes escalated to a point where they were brought to the attention of Empress Catherine the Great in 1762 by two of her serfs. And the two had escaped from the estate after Darya had killed their wives. They made their way to Moscow illegally. If they were caught, Darya would have killed them. And against some astonishingly unlikely odds, they managed to get a letter detailing their mistress's abuses to the empress. And they begged the empress to protect them from mortal ruin and merciless inhuman torment. And Catherine, as I think people familiar with her reign know, was so eager to be seen as seen as this progressive empress. So she didn't automatically dismiss the serfs' complaints as many of her predecessors would. Instead, an investigator named Stephen Volkov was appointed to look into the case. Now, Stephen came from a very poor family, so he might have felt a little bit more sympathy towards the serfs than he did towards the aristocracy. And he found enough evidence of Saltykova's crimes to have her tried. Tried, and this is remarkable given these cases, found guilty. And the death penalty had been revoked in Russia during this period, but Daria was made to wear a sign around her neck and walk through the public square declaring, this woman tortures and murders. Wow. It was a time when cruelty towards serfs was so prevalent during this time that I think people might have seen this and thought, well, like we're all doing that to our serfs. But I think it was also a moment where people were beginning to at least realize that it was not okay to murder people based on a class system. So this is kind of an exciting turning point for Russia. Darya ended up living in the basement of convent, where she spent the rest of her days in total isolation. And members of the upper classes would periodically walk by the convent and peek through the grate so they could make fun of her. It was a very rare case that a very well-born woman, a woman who was considered beautiful and powerful, actually does meet some level of real punishment for her crimes. Will you tell me a story about a woman who just simply murders her partner? All right. Mary Elizabeth Wilson's uh, marriage to her first husband lasted a very admirable 43 years. They met when Mary was working as a servant for the Knowles family. And she married their son, John, who worked at a shipyard. The couple went on to have six children, but before long, they began to quarrel about money. And Mary felt that John was cramping her style. She said he didn't like me having a drink, and that caused a lot of rows. Now, soon they were sleeping in separate bedrooms, and this really frustrated Mary. And to alleviate some of their financial concerns, they took in a lodger. 
And that lodger was a chimney sweep named John Russell. Before long, he and Mary became lovers. Their arrangement persisted through the next 25 years, even after John moved out and surprisingly became very religious. Though Mary continued to cook his meals and clean his house and, of course, sleep with him. This sounds extremely time-consuming for Mary, and it may not have been fully satisfactory to John Knowles, her original husband. He passed away from tuberculosis in 1955. Despite the fact that Mary tended to him exclusively for the two weeks leading up to his death, he left all of his money to the Jarrow Gospel Hall. So all Mary inherited from that marriage was 42 pounds, not because he left it to her, but because she found 42 pounds in the cupboard. Because he knew? Oh, yes, he knew. Yes. Why in that time period would you stay married to somebody when having an affair? Divorce was very difficult, more difficult than it would have been today. We're talking about a period before no-fault divorce. We're also talking about people who did not have much money to begin with. So if you know people who get divorced today, divorce is very expensive. It's very expensive. It's very time consuming. It was much easier for a couple to just say, all right, we're going to lead separate lives. Hmm. Uh, we're going to remain married, but we're going to accept that you're going to sleep with other people. I'm going to sleep with other people. We are now married in name only. 25-year affair, really? Yeah, it was going on for a very long time. Now, he did move out of the house, so at least this affair wasn't entirely happening in the house that they all shared together. But uh, yes, uh, they had a very long affair. Now, she moved in with her lover, John Russell, after this, who she referred to as her fancy man. But John Russell died four months later, also completely debt-ridden, did not leave Mary any money. So Mary had to go to work as a housekeeper, and she found employment with a 75-year-old man named Oliver Leonard. And by most accounts, Mary was a terrible housekeeper. Oliver's house was filled with cobwebs. But by September 1956, the couple married, and unfortunately, less than two weeks later, Oliver was dead. And Oliver left Mary everything he had. He left her 50 pounds. Hmm. The money actually lasted Mary about a year, at which point she answered an ad for a housekeeper placed by Ernest Wilson. And Wilson claimed that he would rather have a wife than a housekeeper. And Mary agreed, but she told him that she was only marrying him because she was $28 behind on her rent. Hmm. Lest you wonder about how this 62-year-old woman kept attracting suitors, she very cavalierly quipped at this time, the men like Mary and I like the men. Hmm. She also liked killing them. At her wedding, a friend asked Mary what she would do with the leftover sandwiches and the cakes. And she said, I'm going to keep them for the funeral. Uh, Ernest laughed along with everybody else, but 15 days later, he was dead, and she did get to reuse the food. Wow. At the registrar's office, where she signed both wedding and funeral certificates, Mary quipped that she was in the office so often, there should be a discount for me. At Ernest's autopsy, phosphorus and bran, two ingredients found in poison used to kill roaches, were found in his viscera. Now, upon this realization, people notice that symptoms of Leonard Oliver's very brief illness had been nearly identical to Ernest Wilson's. When the police exhumed their bodies, Mary seemed unperturbed, and she claimed I gave them nothing but kindness. Mm. Now, her lawyer made the fairly effective case that Wilson and Oliver might have been taking phosphorus as an aphrodisiac to keep up with Mary. What? Phosphorus as an aphrodisiac, really? (laughs) 
<laughs> I don't, I've never heard of that. It's, I don't think it's a great case. Okay. <laughs> but that was ultimately dismissed when it became clear that the men would have had to have taken 150 aphrodisiac pills to poison themselves. Yeah. And that's a pretty unlikely error, even if they were very desperate to keep up with their new life. The prosecutor declared that it was, in fact, a very simple case of a wicked woman who married in succession two men and then deliberately poisoned them in order to get the paltry benefit that she hoped she might obtain by their death. It's actually surprising that Mary didn't benefit more financially, but then had she not been stopped, we don't know how many times she would have been willing to repeat this pattern. Hmm. She was averaging about $100 every two weeks every time she killed people. And she was sentenced to death, but she was given a reprieve to life imprisonment and uh, spent the rest of her life inside a women's prison. Unbelievable story. And, you know, you're right. I mean, just sort of another example of a woman, I think, getting away with something for so long simply because they're women and because of the preconceived notions that we have about them and still have, certainly. What does surprise me is that Mary is not the only woman in this book who tells her friends... I'm going to kill my husband. Yeah. And everybody's like, you're so funny. Isn't she adorable? <laughs> yeah. Actually, I've interviewed several people who take a real feminist stance on this and just say, this is like, I mean, women have every capability of doing exactly what a man can do. Don't ever underestimate women. I've interviewed, you know, forensic psychologists about people with psychopathy and they say that the research is just terrible for women with psychopathy because the majority of the subjects that they have available to them are men who are incarcerated. And with women, psychopathy tends to present differently. Women tend with psychopathy tend to be much more manipulative. So what the forensic psychologist I spoke to said is that the male psychopath will kill you. The female psychopath will ruin your credit and take all your money. So so it's very different. And so I think the way that we look at women who are killers or criminals, I think, has to be reexamined through a certainly a less misogynistic lens than we normally would. I'm assuming you find that that when you're doing this research, it's like, how would you not know this is going to happen, that this woman's going to kill someone? I do find that. And <laughs> one of the things that I find a little surprising is a great many women who I think absolutely identify as being very feminist women want to exonerate every female murderer in history. So what else, when you were looking into this research, what were your criteria? Was it time periods or was it the, it's not the method of murder, it's the motivations and the reaction by their societies. Is that right? Yes, yes. I am always fascinated by how society responds to them. And again, like it really, it's different if you're a pretty white woman. And I think that is still a little bit of the basis behind the compulsion to try to exonerate some of these women now that as a society then and now just cannot believe that women that we think of as being well-bred women could ever kill someone. And I, I think the sort of photo negative of that is that if you talk about women that we look down on or women that we often as society, when you look at immigrants from different periods, mm. or when you look at very impoverished women, people are incredibly apt to think, well, of course they did a murder. Of course they did a murder because that's part of their dark nature. Mm -hmm. And I think that's something that we have to spend a lot more time thinking about as a society and think about who gets the benefit of the doubt and who doesn't. 
Well, Paul Holes and I, you know, we have a show called Buried Bones. Paul Holes and I discussed a case about a woman who was a black woman who was accused of murdering and dismembering her boyfriend. And she accused somebody else who was in the room of doing it. And he accused her. And he was convicted. And she took a plea deal and got less than a year, even though she had admitted to carrying this guy's torso wrapped up on a train and depositing it into a river. She had been caught with this evidence, and I still think the sex aspect of it was still, despite the fact that this is a Black woman, they still said, I cannot believe a woman would have done this. There's no way, even though Paul and I agree, she definitely did it. She did it. Yeah. They couldn't see a woman with a hacksaw. Mm-hmm dismembering a man. I mean, if you think about somebody, who was I talking Harold Schechter, who wrote about Bell Gunnis. Bell Gunnis broke down animals all the time. That's what farm people do. That's what she did. So I still think that sexism is, <laughs> is kind of incredible in these kinds of stories. It absolutely is. Yes. And but look, we are also looking at a society where, yes, I do think people need to do what they need to do to break free from abusive relationships. And again, no-fault divorce is a very, very recent invention. Yeah. The idea that you can leave a marriage just because you're unhappy or being verbally abused or having a very terrible time with your partner has, I think, uh, save lives, um, not just women who might otherwise have been trapped in abusive relationships, but also probably at least one or two men where a wife might have eventually decided, I'm going to tell my friends I'm going to kill my husband and then I'm going to kill my husband. Now, in my third season of my other show, Tenfold More Wicked, I cover a case of Clara Phillips, who was a woman who killed her her husband's would-be lover, who was not his lover at all, with a claw hammer. And she was nicknamed, you know, the tiger murderess and really sexualized in the media. She was beautiful and had this sort of allure about her. Did you do much research on the femme fatale, the woman who is so dangerous that you don't want her too close, but you can't help it? I did not think of this book in terms of femme fatales. When I was looking at these women, I thought more in terms of class. Yeah. Which, and I think, at least in my understanding of it, and when you use that term, I guess I'm just thinking of noir movies with Humphrey Bogart. I think of the femme fatale as being somewhat removed from class, that she can be like a very rich woman Mm -hmm. getting a detective into trouble, or she can come from nowhere and exert her influence through her beauty and her sensuality. So uh, I did not think of it in those terms, partly because unlike femme fatales that I see on screen, if I'm reading about a woman from 1750, records might say that she's beautiful, but also records might have been pressured to say that she's beautiful. Mm-hmm. When um, someone like Christiana Edmonds talked just about how she has been a Venus all her life, was she? I'm, I'm not really sure. Maybe she was very, very beautiful. And if so, that might have factored into her decisions. Or she might have been delusional, which... Seems like it would go along with somebody who poisoned a bunch of chocolates. So uh, I did not think of it in terms of femme fatales. And uh, I often think that men 
kind of want to excuse their own bad decision making by saying that they were lured into this by femme fatale, that Mm -hmm. they never would have killed this woman's husband if this woman hadn't been so sexually alluring. Unless you are really being abused by another person, it's not really fair to blame your murders on them. What do you think you want people to walk away with after reading your book? What is the main message here? I think one of the main message is that power corrupts equally across all sexes. Uh, that as soon as you give people power, whether it's over a group of enslaved people or whether it's over a country, you will find that that person is absolutely capable of behaving very, very badly. Mm-hmm. And I think as women gain more power in society, that is also something to remember, that you maybe don't want somebody to be the head of a company just because she's female. You want her to be the head of a company because this is a good person. I do think that since women have often been granted less power, um, many of them are a little more familiar with what it means to be powerless and a little bit more sympathetic with the powerless. But think about whether or not that person is going to behave well when they are given power. Hmm. And I also think think about when women are being judged for crimes. If you are granting them a lot of sympathy just because you don't think somebody who looks like them could do something evil. Because I think it's important to remember that if we really do believe in equality, then uh, we believe that... The human soul has the same capacity for evil across genders and and hopefully the same capacity for love and for goodness and for taking care of our fellow man, but also the same capacity for evil. If you love historical true crime stories, check out the audio versions of my books, The Ghost Club, All That Is Wicked, and American Sherlock. This has been an Exactly Right production. Our senior producer is Alexis Amorosi. Our associate producer is Christina Chamberlain. This episode was mixed by John Bradley. Curtis Heath is our composer. Artwork by Nick Toga. Executive produced by Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, and Danielle Kramer. Follow Wicked Words on Instagram and Facebook at Tenfold More Wicked and on Twitter at Tenfold More. And if you know of a historical crime that could use some attention from the crew at Tenfold More Wicked, email us at info at tenfoldmorewicked.com. We'll also take your suggestions for true crime authors for Wicked Words. Follow Tenfold More Wicked presents Wicked Words on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you hear, rate and review the show.